I get the pleasure of introducing you to someone this morning who is bold about proclaiming the love of Jesus all over the world. And um, I know for a lot of you, when you, know, when you get to know someone new, you like to play the, um, the do you know game. This is the game where you go like, oh, do you know, like from college, somebody who graduated like six years after I did, you know how that goes, the do you know game. A lot of you could play the do you know game with Doug, and I bet you would find people in common. So here's a list of people that you might find in common with Doug. So if you are in any of these categories, I want you to raise your hand. Do you know anyone in Young Life? Okay, yeah, so quite a few of you. Okay, so the do you know game, we're already already off to a good start. Are you willing to admit that you know a family member who's a lawyer? Okay, all right, good. Okay, you're in good company with Doug. Do you um, know anyone who met their spouse in Tacoma? Yeah, a couple local people? Okay. Do you know anyone who travels to Washington, D.C. on that awful Sunday night red eye and comes back on Thursday night on a regular basis? Yeah, okay, so a couple of you. Doug Doug knows this. Do any of you um, prefer to go by the name of Grandpa or Poppy? Is this a title of honor that you have? Anybody? Any grandpas or poppies in the room? Um, Doug is the proud poppy of 14 grandbabies under seven. So you might just have something in common with Doug. That's right. One more. Do you, um, do you know or are you someone personally whose heart is deeply knit to Russia or to another foreign country? You'd call another place home other than the States. Awesome. So I get to introduce you then to Doug Burley, who I think would be your friend. He is a friend of mine. He is a friend of Chapel Hills. And most importantly, he is a friend of Jesus. And so would you welcome Doug this morning? Boy, I really miss that Washington, D.C. humidity, you know? <laughs> Just out here, you, you come out and you're not sweating all over. It's wonderful. I always feel when I come back here, I come home. Uh, we've been out in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. <clears throat> Somebody said, well, are you ever coming back uh, to live? And I said, if the Lord tells us, we'll be back in a heartbeat. Um, we're all under orders, aren't we? And uh, this church is really a home for us, even though we're not here very often. We still call it a church home. Uh, in 1993, after we had worked with Billy Graham and the Moscow Crusade, uh, we ended up in Gig Harbor and, uh, and loved the 12 years that we had at this church and still love many of you that we've known. So coming here is, is really coming home. And uh, when I got my assignment here five or six weeks ago to do Acts 17 as a former Young Life leader, um, this doesn't get any better than this because this wonderful topic this morning, uh, Paul at Mars Hill, uh, just, it just reeks of what Young Life leaders do, is to go out and win the right to be heard by building relationships And I hope when we conclude this morning that all of us will feel like that's really our calling and our privilege as ministers of Jesus Christ, as his ambassadors, to represent him. About three years ago, um, my oldest son, who's an attorney here in Gig Harbor, um, 
he, and he loves Jesus, okay? Uh, <laughs> um, he, he, he'd been trying to talk me into getting on Facebook. Um, and I just didn't want to spend the time to do it. And he goes, Dad, you're going to reconnect with hundreds of old young life kids and stuff. And that's really happened. Uh, I kind of promised myself I wouldn't friend anybody. I just kind of received the ones that came. And my gosh, they came over 1,200 now, I think. And uh, it's, it's a fun thing if you don't spend too much time at it, you know. Um, I, I ran across this little thing the other day, and this is for those in the older generation who do not comprehend why Facebook exists. Presently, I am trying to make friends outside of Facebook while applying the same principles. Therefore, every day, I go down on the street and tell the passers-by what I have eaten, <laughs> how I feel, what I have done the night before, and what I will do tomorrow night. Then I give them pictures of my family, my dog, uh, me gardening, and, and spending time at the pool. I also listen to their conversation, and I tell them I love them. And it works. I already have three people following me. Two police officers and a psychiatrist. So don't spend too much time on Facebook, okay? Um, I, I love the real thing, and that's connecting with people face-to-face, heart-to-heart. Um, and, and that's really what Paul was trying to do at Mars Hill. That's why I love this story so much. Let me just make a couple of comments about the first 15 verses, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, not because they aren't important, but first of all, going to Thessalonica, oh my, you, you, you got to read what happened there. I mean, it wasn't exactly a friendly reception as, as Paul preached about Jesus. Um, boy, the, the, the troops got up in arms, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was messy. Um, he sneaked out of Thessalonica and went to Berea, and by the time he got there, the people had heard uh, from the Thessalonians, and it didn't go that well there either. Although, um, and, and I just want to make an observation. Second um, Timothy 3.12 says, All those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I, I want to say I think the day is coming very soon that as followers of Jesus, we will experience that. I think the recent Supreme Court decision is, is a portent of what's to come. Um, but you know, after going to Russia for 50 years, I have yet to find a believer who doesn't feel like persecution and those kind of difficulties aren't a blessing that cause us to go deeper, to be, have stronger convictions for our faith. It kind of gets rid of the lukewarm people, doesn't it? And uh, I, I just think as we look toward that day that it is a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. I, I'll, I'll never forget, it was 1990 in Moscow, and I was serving um, on the, the Lausanne Committee, which is a committee for world evangelization. I was the president of Young Life, and Bill Bright was, was there as the head of Crusade, and 
Jerry White from InterVarsity and Dick Wynn from Youth for Christ. And there were 1,500 Soviet pastors there. And I'll never forget this moment. Um, Somebody stood up and said, now we want to have a moment of silence for all those who have given their life and suffered greatly for their faith. And we bowed our head, and I, I, st- I didn't start to weep. I started to sob, because I realized I didn't know what they were talking about. I'd never experienced that. But, you know, I have yet to run into somebody that has, that wouldn't say, thank God for the privilege of suffering for his name. It draws us deeper. So I just want to say that word to us. I don't think it's a bad thing. Although you deplore so many things that are happening in our society today that are so contrary to God's standards. Um, But it's coming, I believe. And it gives us the privilege and the opportunity to stand up for him boldly. The other thing I want to observe is verse 11. Um, It says, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the teachings of Paul with joy, it said, and searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. You know, I think we get a tendency to read too many Christian books. I'd encourage you, spend the best part of your time in the book, the God-breathed one, the only one that, that, uh, that is God-breathed, as it says in Second Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians. Uh, it uh, it, it is, and it's written by the Holy Spirit, and it helps us to, uh, to understand God's thoughts. Uh, I know a lot of you went through that 90-day challenge and had a chance to, to look at the, the thoughts of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and I hope it drew you a lot closer to him. Um, keep doing that. Stay in the scriptures. Be a Berean. And by the way, how do you know the difference between things that aren't true, and there's a lot of voices that that aren't biblical, Um, here's how you know. The Spirit and the Word always agree. So the more I walk through God's Word, okay, the closer I get to being able to recognize His voice from all the others. All right, let's take a few minutes here and just walk through this passage. Uh, if it's okay, I, I want to use the uh, Phillips translation, uh, modern English. I kind of like this. Kind of young life people really love this translation. It's a modern one. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and walk us through it. Um, chapter 17, starting with verse 16. Paul had some days to wait in Athens for Silas and Timothy to arrive, and while he was there, his soul was exasperated at the sight of a city so completely idolatrous. Um, The first commandment is, thou shall have no other gods before me. And and, uh, the first command, by the way, if you look up God in the dictionary, little g, it says, the person or thing of supreme value in someone's life. And these Athenians had a lot of other gods, idols, You think about our society, money, sex, and power, all kinds of false gods. Maybe they weren't crafted, you know, in gold and silver like their idols were, but isn't it easy 
to have something or someone else take that place that's reserved only for Jesus, the King of Kings. So Paul's walking around. He's just revulsed by the idolatry. And certainly we could say that in our society as we walk around, we see, we see that. He felt compelled to discuss the, the matter with the Jews in the synagogue as well as the God-fearing Gentiles, and he even argued daily in the open marketplace with the passers-by. While he, while he was speaking, there's some Epicurean, remember those guys, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and Stoics, those people that thought rationality would figure it all out. Isn't that amazing? The finite, trying to understand the infinite, doesn't happen, does it? Stoic philosophers came across them, and some of them remarked, what is this cock sparrow trying to say? You don't hear that term very often, do you? They obviously were, were mocking him. And others said, he, he seems to be trying to proclaim some more gods to us, and foreign ones at that. And by the way, they liked that. So he was ushered up to the Areopagus where that council where they all get together and share all these philosophies. Isn't that sad? You know, when I've got a philosophy I talk about, it's out here. What we're talking about is not a religion or a religious philosophy. You know, if you Google the term Christianity, it says the religion Jesus founded. That is a totally unbiblical idea. If anybody can show me in the scripture where Jesus founded a religion called Christianity, I'll, get, I'll write you a $1,000 check, and I don't even know if I have it in the bank. But anyway, <clears throat> it's not there. We're not talking about a religion. We're talking about a person. Doesn't that make all the difference in the world? It says, for Paul was actually proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. As you go through Acts, notice how many times it says, and they proclaimed the name. Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. It's all about the name, the person Jesus, not the religion. It's all about him. The gospel is a person. I hope as you share with people, it's all about Jesus. You know, I've told a lot of friends, if I'm sitting on an airplane and I'm reading my Bible and somebody says, oh, are you a Christian? I think I'd say, you know, I used to be and then I met Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but let me ask you, what are we going to be talking about next? We're going to be talking about the difference between a religion that I'll bet 99% have had painful experiences of legalism, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and a person that the whole world is drawn to. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, even Christians, okay, at the prayer breakfast in Washington, we say it's a prayer breakfast in the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice I didn't say Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's his title. And how do we know he's the Christ? The Holy Spirit reveals it to us. Okay? 
But the whole world is curious about this person. So our message isn't religion. It's a person, Jesus. So here's Paul with these theoretical, philosophical Athenians, and he's talking about Jesus. I love his message. Um, He walks around for a couple days alone. He happens to run across, as he tells us here in a minute, a little shrine to the unknown God. He did his homework, didn't he? He met them right where they were. Okay, so they say, may we know what this new teaching of, of yours really is. You talk of matters which sound strange to our ears. We should like to know what they mean for all the Athenians and even foreign visitors to Athens had an obsession for any novelty, would spend their whole time talking or listening to anything new. But it didn't cost them anything, did it? It could be out there. Our faith is in here. It's all about knowing and loving the King of Kings. So Paul got to his feet in the middle of the council and began. I'll bet you he didn't have any notes. You see, one of the things that the Holy Spirit tells us that uh, we'll be able to do when he's in our heart is to testify. And let me just take a minute. I want to give you a little assignment. I hope you'll do it. I do this with the young people in Washington, D.C. that come for a year as guys and gals from all over the world uh, to be interns. Um, When I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, I say, you know, in 15 verses in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus tells us all the things that he shares in the gospel about the Holy Spirit. So just imagine, a week ago, a loved one has died, had a lot of wealth. So a week later, you're sitting around the table with a lawyer, and he's going to read you the will. Well, Jesus died, rose again, and goes to heaven And now you get to find out what you get when the Holy Spirit comes into your life at salvation. So if you've got a pen and paper, let me just give you those 15 verses, and you go home and do it yourself. I love it when these kids write down all the wonderful things they receive from the Holy Spirit. So John 14, verses 15 to 17. 25 and 26. John 14, 15 to 17, 25 and 26. John 15, 26 and 27. And John 16, 7 to 15. You know, I love that list. It includes things like this. He's the counselor. He leads us into the truth. He reminds us of the words of Jesus He tells us what is to come. He comforts us in our affliction. One of my favorite ones is an odd one. You'll think this. He convicts us of sin. By the way, if you didn't have that, how would you ever change? What a gift. Sometimes it may not feel like it, but what a wonderful gift that the Holy Spirit convicts us of wrong and helps us to turn around, to repent, 180-degree turn from going that way to following him. 
So do that. You'll, you'll find out so much of what you and I get when Jesus uh, ascended to heaven and left behind his spirit. One other thing. As I talk about the Holy Spirit, the kids memorize 10 or 12 verses. One of them is Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. Um, so what I do then is they've all said their verses and before we talk about the Holy Spirit, I'll say, by the way, could you guys bring me a toaster? They look at you kind of funny. They go out to the kitchen. They bring the toaster and I put it on my lap. And... Uh, I say, you know, this is a great thing. It is all shiny. And, you know, you can put uh, frozen waffles in there, Pop-Tarts. I hate Pop-Tarts. Uh, bread. You know, and you just push it down, and they get hot in just a minute or two. And, of course, nothing happened. So I go, well, and I take my hand and just hit the side of it and press it down again. What in the world is wrong with this thing? And people are kind of laughing. Okay. And I hit it again. And the same thing happens every time. Doug, you got to plug it in. Yeah. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Do you really believe it? Doug, you got to plug it in. So for us, to plug into the power source, how do we do that? Spending time with Jesus, reading his word, talking to him, listening to him, fellowshipping with others, being accountable to one another. Let's plug it in. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can't do anything. So here's Paul. I don't think he had any notes. I think he just went ahead and the Spirit testified through him. Gentlemen of Athens, my own eyes tell me you are in all ways an extremely religious people. One of my political friends in Washington said, you know, Doug, it's a ham sandwich. Oops. Uh, It's a ham sandwich. You always start out with a compliment. You notice that? You're really religious people. Then you kind of give them the heart of what you want to say and close with a compliment. So you got the pieces of bread and you got the ham in between. The ham is really what you wanted to get at. He starts out and he compliments them. You're a very religious people, for I walk through your city looking at your shrines. We call that contact work. He went to where they were. And by the way, where do you learn that from? Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or the message translation, the word of God became a human being and moved into the neighborhood. It was God's idea. So that's what we want to do with people. Move into their neighborhood. Love them. Be their friend. Listen to them. Just as Paul did with these Athenians. For as I walked through your city looking at your shrines, I found one altar on which were inscribed the words, To God the Unknown. It is this God whom you're worshiping in ignorance that I'm here to proclaim to you. And notice how personal and relational his proclamation is. 
God, who made the world and all that is in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in man-made temples, nor is he ministered to by human hands as though he had need of anything, seeing that he is the one who gives all men to all men life and breath and everything else. From one ancestor, he has created every race of men to live over the face of the earth. Different message than these Athenians had ever heard. He has determined the times of their existence and the limits of their habitation so they might search for God in the hopes they might feel for him and find him. Yes, even though he's not far from any of us, indeed it is in him that we live and move and have our being. I'd never heard this presentation before, a personal God. We used to sing in young life, he's everything to me. Then I knew that he was more than just a God who didn't care, who lived away up there. Now he walks beside me day by day, ever watching over me lest I stray, helping me, little old me, just one of seven and a half billion people, helping me to find the narrow way. He's everything to me. That's his message. Wow. For we are indeed his children. If then we are the children of God, we ought not to think of him in terms of gold or silver or stone as all those idols didn't proclaim anything that mattered by human art and imagination. Now, while it is true that God has overlooked the days of ignorance, he now commands all men everywhere to repent, for he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the whole world in justice by the standard of a man whom he has appointed, and that this is so he has guaranteed to all men by raising this man from the dead. I love this response. When his audience heard Paul talk about the resurrection from the dead, some of them jeered. Others said, we'd like to hear you speak again on this subject. So with this mixed reception, Paul retired from their assembly, yet some did in fact join him and accept the faith, including Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman by the name of Damaris, and some others as well. My father-in-law, who's been a mentor for me for many years, said to me one time, you know, Doug, the parable of the sower in Mark 4 includes all seven and a half billion people on the planet. The hard ground, some of these people never got past the first, just bounced right off, didn't it? The birds pecked it up. The rocky soil got interested, got even excited. No roots. The thorny soil, the cares of the world squeezed the life out of that seed. And finally, the good soil, 30, 60, and 100 fold. We're talking about the whole world. We're going to have all kinds of those responses. Some that laughed, made fun of it. Some that want to think more about it. And others a handful that received Jesus. Praise the Lord. I'm not responsible for the results, but I am commissioned as his disciple as I'm going to share the good news 
Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. You know, Matthew 28, as you're going, make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, you'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Right here in Gig Harbor, in Pierce County, Washington State, and all over the world, and he wasn't just talking to people who had a reverend in front of their name. He's talking to every one of us. What a privilege, and what a responsibility to represent him, to be his ambassadors. I love this story. Paul got his hands dirty, didn't he? Being with those Athenians. And a few believed. And I wonder about Dionysius in the Areopagus. I wonder how many people he reached right there in that place where intellectualism was king. And this guy followed Jesus. I bet he made a difference. Well, what a huge privilege we have to represent him. I want to close with a little something that uh, I've carried around in my briefcase for years, written by an Episcopalian priest who lived in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It's called I Stand by the Door. And if you remember, the door is a person. John 10, 7 says, Jesus says, I am the door. The sheep, they come in through the door. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in or stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside the door and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind people with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door, the door to God. And the most important thing any person can do is to take a hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. People die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they found him. So nothing else matters compared to helping them find him and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand near the, by the door. So as for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he's there but not so far from people, so as not to hear them and remember they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for you and me, one of them. 
two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. Lord, thank you that the door isn't a religion, the door is a person. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege we have to be your ambassadors, to represent you. And Lord, we know we can't do it apart from the power and the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So thank you, Lord, for coming in our hearts and equipping us to testify about the greatness and the power of your name, Jesus. In your name we pray.